Jeff Smith and welcome to the secrets of success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success and to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity when times got tough, and I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In this episode, I'm talking with Steve Meller. Steve realized his potential as a world-class athlete when ranked in the top 50 world backstroke swimmers and became a member of the British senior team at international events. He then spent a decade as an elite-level swimming coach in the United States University system, coaching swimmers to national and international prominence. And his final act was that of being the man behind Louisiana State University's first-ever American Olympic swimmer, Brooks Curry, who went on to win Olympic gold with Team USA at the 2020 Games. Steve turned his passion for optimizing individual performance into founding his own company and went on to host Career Competitor Podcast, interviewing athletes and established competitors to discuss how they optimize their competitive characteristics to reach the dizzy heights in their careers. But that's not all. Steve has written his first book called Shock the World, a competitor's guide to realizing your potential. Steve believes he's the result of a man who has walked the path of betting on himself, going the extra mile and believing that great things come to those who see and dare to realize their own potential. So let's bring in the champion himself to find out more. Welcome to the show, Steve Mellon. Excited hey, to be here, Jeff. Steve, it's great to see you. How are you doing today? You're looking amazing I'm, and very confident, I have to say. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm very comfortable to this space. And uh, honestly, I've, I've been I've had this on the calendar now for a few weeks. I've been looking forward to this, loving the opportunity to be here. Oh, wonderful. It's wonderful to have you here. And a fellow Brit, of course, even though, even though you're working on the dark side and coaching (laughs) the Americans against us and winning gold. Anyway, I I can't find out. I can't wait to find out about your life, your accomplishments, and of course, your book, which we'll get onto. But before we do that, I want to find out more about you, Steve. So I've got three questions. Where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? Wow. So born in Chester, Chester, England. Um, and for me, 
all I knew until probably about the age of 14, 15 was Chester, England. Uh, the, the sport of swimming very much allowed me to start seeing more of the country and for that matter in time, the world. But for, as a child, I would say that I was given the opportunities to simply play. You know, I was I was a kid that played, and if if I wasn't playing, I was probably eating or sleeping. It was that simple. Um, you know, for for me, it was as as typical a childhood as I would like to assume that one could have. And um, what it did allow me to do, though, is have an imagination. It allowed me to think big. And and if I was playing with friends, I wasn't just playing football. I was. It was the FA Cup final, and we were trying to score the winning goal. If I was. <laughs> Throwing, if I was throwing a, a pretend javelin that we made out of some stick that we found laying around, I wasn't just throwing a javelin. I was, it was the last throw for the Olympic gold medal. Uh, you know, it was, it was always that big moment. And, um, and then you would celebrate it like it was too. Uh, you know, <laughs> with the gold, you'd run around, your shirt was off the whole thing. And, and it was, it was what you, for, for me, that was something I look back fondly on growing up is not only did I have the chance to play, but I was allowed to have an imagination in that play and and dream big and start dreaming. What are those big moments in life, whether it be sport or beyond, and then really start to just get carried away and and usually go to bed at night dreaming those same dreams and, and thinking of those same things maybe happening for me at some point in the future. So what were your aspirations when you grew up looking at your future? What, what did you think you would become? You know, what's funny, Jeff, is what I love about that question is that it it's something that I've actually done a lot of work on recently um, because I'm at this point in my life now where I have opportunities that if you told 12, 13, 14-year-old Steve that he was going to have these opportunities, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have even registered. It wouldn't have had any real meaning. The, the, the likelihood of, of actually achieving it, it would have been just such an alienated concept. I wouldn't have been able to wrap my head around it. And, and so for me, having the opportunity just to chase my passions was the ultimate goal. And when I say passions, I mean both sport, but also beyond that in the performing arts as well. I was, I was a theater kid growing up. So when I wasn't playing outside with friends, I was going to theater classes and I pursued both those things all the way through A-levels, believe it or not. I was allowed to do sports science and theater studies all the way through A-levels. So for me, knowing that I was at least pursuing my passions was my way of saying, listen, at least you're pursuing Steve. You're, pursue you're not pursuing some version of Steve. You're not pursuing an idea of Steve. You're truly pursuing you. And as long as I kept doing that, I think there was always this sort of part in the back of my mind. It was like, I think there's going to be some opportunities that come from this if you continue just to trust that, hey, at the end of the day, you get to put your head on the pillow at night and say, I'm staying true to me and I'm pursuing what I care and love about in life. And I'm willing just to s remain curious and see where it goes. Okay. So in your mind, you didn't know what you wanted to become. All that you focused on was whatever it is, it's going to be good, right? Mm -hmm. okay. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, again, I was actually surrounded by a lot of people that seemed to know what they wanted to be. And I even wrestled with that even when I got to the heights of what I did with my swim coaching and we'll probably get to that. But even when I was at the top of one field, it still didn't feel like all of me. It still didn't feel like I was pursuing whatever this version of me I was supposed to be pursuing. So for me, I think I've always been so curious to a point where I've not been actually too specific 
with exactly what it is I want, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes absolute sense. And mm. I really want to come on to that. Be mm. Not yet. Not yet. Mm. Because it, it is a fascinating one because I've traveled that journey, traveling that journey myself. Mm. So mm. Uh, even into well into my 60s now, I'm still becoming. So, but, but it's quite fascinating. So rewinding back when you were a little one then, you didn't do anything by halves. You're a winner at everything, throwing for the gold medal, even if it's right. a bent stick, javelin. Where do you think that comes from? Because dare I say, I'm going to use the word normal. Mm. That's not normal. It, it isn't. Mm -hmm. So the other kids you were playing with, were they the same or did they just copy you or, or were you the, the different one? I, w I was the catalyst. I will say that. Yeah, I, I was yeah. the catalyst. And, and even to the point of where some of my favorite memories growing up, I tell this all the time because, you know, when I was 11, 12 years old, my dad sat me down and just sort of made it very clear. Like, listen, Steve, you're not, you're not going to be known for the football player that you want to necessarily be. And to any 11, <laughs> to any 11, 12 year old kid in England, that is I mean, there's no worse news. It's the worst yeah. news you can receive. Um, so for me, the beauty of that, though, was that he very much cushioned the blow with like encouraging me to pursue swimming at the same time. But what I'll say there is it didn't it didn't prevent me from still pursuing football. I still played it throughout school, throughout A-levels. And I, I remained a catalyst for others to actually go on and keep going with the sport and to actually reach levels higher than myself in areas where I didn't have the same amount of talent. And what I would do is we would play games and then I would actually relive the goals on the van ride back to school. And I would do my own little commentary of the ball coming in and someone <laughs> heading the ball and going in the goal. And I do the cell, I do the, the commentary as if I was Des Lynam back in the day and all this kind of thing. And so for me, it was, it was just, it was okay. Like, listen, we can just go to a game and play and score goals and maybe even win. Or we can find ways to acknowledge that not only did we win, but we had fun and that we were all performing at a high level and that we can all take something away that we can remember. And it was always, how can I take something that is normal and add something to it, be a spark, be a catalyst and say, okay, this isn't only worth enjoying, but it's something we can actually remember and maybe even take pride in for that matter. Yeah. What's interesting there, Steve, I've studied successful people for 40 years now. One of the common traits I found in them is exactly what you just explained. So lots of people visualize, hmm. but then champions and successful people take visualization to a completely new level. As, as you said, oh, I didn't just score a goal. I did the commentary. I took my shirt off. I w it was the winning goal and like, I celebrated. You saw, you felt, you heard the crowd, the whole thing. And that's one common thing that I find with successful people. So I just wanted to drop that in there. I appreciate it. However, before we go on, I need to unpick this accent of yours. <laughs> so I, let, let me... Um, let me put some background here for the listener because this, this show gets heard all over the world. Sure. So people saying, Chester, where on earth is Chester? So let me put this into context then. <laughs> uh, most people know where the United Kingdom is and within the United Kingdom we have England. Most people can say, okay, London. 
Okay, so if we go north of London for two hours, we get to Birmingham. Okay, that's fine. Now, if we go north again another two hours, we get to Manchester. Chester is around that kind of area, <laughs> out to the west. So what I hear is a, a guy with a little bit of a Manchester accent, but then you've got this American bit that comes through there as well. So I've done the the English geography, Steve. So yeah. when did you then move to USA? <laughs> where in the USA? And where, where's this accent coming from? I love it. Yeah. It, for me, I can't win, Jeff, anywhere I go. If I come to the UK, they tell me I sound American and Americans will still tell me I sound British to this day. So it, does, it doesn't matter where I go. My accent doesn't fit. Um, but the in 2005, I, I was actually in um, around the Manchester region for for about four or five years before I moved um, to, to the US in Stockport. It was one of their centers of excellence for, for British swimming at the time. And so for me, I spent the last few years there and then moved to North Carolina, so a city called Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, here in the US, which was home for me for six years. So I did my undergraduate school, then also my master's degree um, there over a six-year span while I was swimming and then started to get into coaching, but then spent most of the last decade in Louisiana, which to those that don't know, uh, you're going to find about the strongest, thickest blend of American twangs and Southern draws as you can possibly find down here in the deep rooted South that is, that is Louisiana. And, and so for me, that has been an influence on like probably I'm even aware of uh, when it comes to my accent at times in order to fit in. And it's funny that my, my wife is from this very, very small town. It's called Thibodeau and it's spelt with a it's got an x in there like the, it finishes with the letter x so when you hear the name thibodeau you go how does it finish with the letter x but it does um a lot of french influence and um anyway when when i go there and i have a few drinks and they have a few drinks no one understands anybody uh, at that point uh, i don't understand what they're saying they don't understand what i'm saying um but uh, hey you know what it, it while while it may be difficult for me to be understood at times around here uh, it's Southern hospitality. It means everybody just says, hey, come on, come all. Let's have a good time. Um, and it's been good to me for a long time down here, for sure. Oh, wonderful. Well, at least mm. your accent is either American or English. Mine <laughs> is universal. No one knows where on the planet that I come from. <laughs> okay, so how old were you when you realized you could swim? So I was about, gosh, six or seven years old now, probably, I would say. Um, and I only got into it because I had an older sister, two years older than me. It's just the two of us. Um, and she she was getting good at it. And young young brother Steve didn't like the fact that older <laughs> sister was, was, was better than him at something. Um, she was better than me at a lot at that age. She was a real tomboy, my sister at the time growing up. Uh, very much grown out of that now, but you know, for, for, for most of my childhood, my sister would set a standard and I would try and chase it. And fortunately around the age of 10 or 11, I shot up about a foot and a half in a space of probably a two year span. And before long, uh, you know, left my sister behind me and started working on the boys that I was swimming against as opposed to you know, my, my, my sister at home. Uh, and then that was about it. Once I got a feel for it around 10 or 11, I started taking it up properly. Okay. What is the regime, the daily regime for, let me say, an, an Olympic swimmer? Because that's mm. what you were going for, right? You, sure. didn't, you didn't want to just be any swimmer, 
this is right. Steve Meller, the one who's going to lift the gold medal. And so <laughs> what's the daily regime of an Olympic swimmer? Um, it's unforgiving is the way, the way I like to describe it. Um, you know, it's it, it is certain, usually around the age of 14, 15, you decide like, listen, if, if this is what I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I have to be all in because to be competitive, that's just the way it is. You're either all in or you're just not competitive. Um, and so for me, from the age of about 15 years old, uh, four mornings a week. So when I say mornings, I mean, waking up no later than probably half four in the morning to be in the water by about five, quarter past five and swimming for a solid two hours before I even think about school. Um, and then every, every night of the week, I'd always be swimming too. And then usually on a Saturday morning to add on to that. So I'd sleep in maybe once a week. And when I say sleep in, you know, I start to go to school. So it wasn't much of a sleep in. Um, so from the age of 15 to oh, 23, so about an eight, nine year span, all I knew was nine, 10 training sessions a week, each one, no less than two hours at a time. Um, so yeah, 20, 20 plus hours of up and down swimming for about nine years straight, which is probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. Okay. So let's think about a two hour swim then. Yeah. What's the purpose of swimming for two hours? <laughs> what are you doing? I asked that question many times. Going <laughs> over. Um, <laughs> but you know, you know, what's funny is that um, the further and further you go, as you move towards that, uh, area of saying like, Hey, I'm, I'm now gone from being maybe a, a hopeful junior to truly moving into the senior level. The specificity of what you're doing within that two hours is very much turned up a notch. Um, so for instance, once I established myself as a, as a national caliber, 100, 200 meter backstroker, most of my week was spent on my back. Uh, you know, it made, it made sense at that point in terms of realizing my potential in any other areas and developing myself in other strokes. I kind of had my opportunity to do that. It didn't mean I wasn't competitive. It just meant that the ceiling for myself as a backstroker was significantly greater. And I realized that around 18, 19 years old. So the beauty of that sort of five, six year span on the second half of that more elite chapter of my swimming was that, like I said, once I was in the water, if we were doing some fitness training, uh, I would always be moving back and forth between being on my back and being on my stomach swimming front crawl. Um, but then in addition to that, when we would swim fast, uh, most of what I was doing again would be on my back, swimming backstroke and making sure I was refining details. But you would go through, I, I, I would always, always call them gears while I was swimming, you know, just like a car, you know, you'd probably work with about six gears, to be honest, um, when you were in the water. And a lot of that time was spent in the first to the third gear, believe it or not, in terms of actual time, then in terms of quality, then you'd start to move into that fourth, fifth, and sixth gear. And so you'd only spend about a third of your week working in those areas and spend most of the other time, first, second, third gear, just maintaining fitness, working on technique, things like that, passing the time. Uh, but you'll be amazed at once you got into that routine of just being in the water for two hours at a time and having a little break here and there throughout the two hours, those two hours would go by in a blink of an eye. Rarely were you looking at the clock and wondering when it was going to be done. And you'd wonder, most days, you'd wonder, how was that two hours? I mean, I just, just got in, swam and got out. And before you knew it, two hours had passed. So yeah, it was a, it was a blend of that. But um, it, it seems like a past life now, to be honest with you, Jeff. I, I, I think about it and I'm just like, how did I ever even do that? I can't even comprehend it, to be honest, at yeah. this point. I, I think once you get to that stage, there's a point where you can't not do it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I love to swim as we were talking just before the show. Swimming is my thing. Nowhere near at your level. I'm not competitive. <laughs> I just like to swim. But yeah. um I I put on my watch to count the lengths and then I swim and my head is just somewhere else completely. So I can really relate to how on earth has two hours gone by? How has it just mm -hmm. gone by? It's gone. I haven't got yeah. to that stage with my running yet. I hate running. <laughs> I just can't like escape what, it. You I, can't I, escape it. Yeah. I, I just <laughs> like what running does for me. But yeah. I, I do love swimming. Okay, so what is the mindset, do you think, of a champion? And how is that different from others? You know, I've been, I've been studying this so much longer than I would give myself credit for, I think. Uh, and that's been the beauty of moving into this world that I'm in now outside of sport is I spent a lot of the past year to 18 months of building my business thinking about, you know, when did I first start really coaching, like really coaching? But at the same time, when did I start detecting what it means to be the best at something? And for me, the, the, the way I've started describing it is that a, a champion is always willing to wonder, hey, what if, what if I just try? What if I just consider the reason to do something as opposed to consider the reason not to do something? And I think there's a beauty in that, in the sense of that almost, I don't want to use the word blind because it shows almost like an ignorance, but that optimism absolutely all-encompassing optimism to always assume that no matter what is put in front of you, if you can just look at the situation, look at the opportunity and say, yeah, but what if, what if I can actually deliver? What if I can actually overcome? What if I can actually do what is required to become what it is I believe I can become? Because the majority of the world will look at a situation and say, yeah, but what if it doesn't work? So they'll take that same, those same two words, but they'll go the other way with them. And whereas a champion will always assume there's still hope, there's still a possibility that if we're willing to at least consider it, if we're willing to at least give it a go, that we may benefit from having done so. And most champions don't do well with living as well. Does that go beyond that point? Champions don't live well with knowing that they've missed out on an opportunity too, which is why they have that inner ability just to see, hey, listen, if I just look at this and say, yeah, but what if this were to actually come to fruition? What if this were going to be my moment? I don't want to look back and wish I'd considered it when I could just go ahead and consider it today. Mm, and they're willing to fail, to try. Exactly. Because if you don't do it, how do you know? Right. And the the fear of failing, I think, has killed more dreams than actually trying. And I think that's what you said there. The the champion yeah. will, okay, if I'm going to fail, I'll fail. I don't think I will. Let's go into this. Let's try it. If it works, awesome. I have an edge. If not, I'll drop it and do something else. But I'm going to do it anyway. So mm. that, that's good. Now, you, you've spoken about coaching. 
I remember having some chat, uh, chats with some friends of mine. We, we were watching golf. I can't. It might have been Mick, Nick Faldo or something like that in Tiger Woods, and they're there with the coach, and the coach is telling them what to do and things like that. And these bunch of friends say to me, "I don't understand why professional sports people have coaches. I don't get it because the coach is not as good as the pro." So. What is the pro getting from the coach? <laughs> I smiled at it, of course, and I, I gave my particular version. But you're a professional coach. Okay, you do other things, but you've taken a guy through the Unisystem and made them or helped them to become Olympic gold medalist. So they may be hard and use the words of what, what my friends had said, you couldn't do it yourself, so how could how can you teach someone else to do it? Because I think this is a very very important part. Very much so. Uh, you know, for me, the moment I got into swim coaching, specifically swim coaching, I learned, and I'm very blessed to have this ability to sort of perceive situations the way I do. But I learned very quickly that I wasn't coaching me. wasn't coaching me. I was coaching hundreds and hundreds of other people that had a variety of different abilities and talents and approaches to what they did, but not a single one of them was me. And the sooner I was able to get my head around that, the more effective I could be as a coach. And I think a lot of the times when we move, when a former athlete, especially, because that's the thing here too, is that sometimes you'll see, say in a sport of golf, a lot of very unfamiliar figures who are coaching professional golfers, rarely will you see in that particular sport a former player coaching, at least in the public aspect. Maybe they do it privately. but And it's the same goes for tennis. And it is quite similar as well in the sport of swimming. And you'll notice there in all those situations, individual sports. Individual sports where one person is having to make their decisions in terms of what they do each and every day. And, and so for me... When I first started coaching and I was able to wrap my head around that, listen, these are all different individuals with different needs and different expectations, then suddenly now you're able to see what they are unable to see about themselves because you are treating them for the specific individual that they are. And as individuals, we don't do very well at that. We're too busy comparing ourselves to others. So when we're busy doing that, we need a coach to be able to almost shut us down and say, listen, focus here, focus, focus you on you first, stay in your lane, stay uh, around your tee box, you know, stay on your tennis court, whatever it is, focus on you because you're so distracted by your competition. You're so distracted by what's going on around you or you're comparing yourself, which is even worse to what's going on around you that you're not actually focusing on what you need to do to get better. And that's what the best coaches do. And that is completely detached from, from one's ability to either do that sport at a high level or whatever it might be. That is a, a human ability. That is not a swimming ability. That is a human ability. And I think that's the thing that people miss most is like they're focused on the skill and they're forgetting that there's a human being behind the skill. And that so often at the elite level, Coaches are coaching the human. They're not coaching the skill or the athlete, so to speak. It's all about those details of the human at that point. Fascinating. 
how then does the, let's stay with the swimmer, how mm. does the swimmer become and continue to be a better swimmer? Well, that is, that is where I personally thrived in, in the world of, of swim coaching was that notion of achieving something, recognizing progress, and then immediately revisiting the discussion of how do we now build upon that. And the beauty of that was that I loved meeting people in spaces where I would ask what what does that performance mean to you? How do you assess that performance, for instance? How would you maybe assess how best to build upon that or areas within that performance, even though it went well, that you felt you could still do better? And then my goal from that point on as a coach was to simply remind them of what they themselves have seen or what they themselves have experienced. And I think sometimes in, let's say, swim coaching, if we're going to stay specific to that, it's easy to... As a, as a coach, it's easy to sort of become detached from the individual and focus too much on the science or the textbooks or whatever they're saying, when really a lot of the information that an individual has about their own development is inside of them. It's inside, it's inside of them. It's inside of their uh, each individual performance. It's inside each individual level of progression that they have as they go through. And so for me, I would never ask of an athlete what they themselves had already asked of themselves. They'd already told me in some way, shape or form, like, this is what I want to achieve. These are the areas that I need to work on. So my goal as a coach is just to hold them accountable to those things. The problem is more often than not, is that we as human beings, when we identify our flaws and then someone actually holds us accountable to them, we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear that <laughs> at that point. It's like, I know that's what I said. I know that's what I said, but I don't need you telling me right now. It's just like, but that's my job. My job is to literally remind you of these things that you yourself have identified. And that is why the world of coaching has now flowed into the business space so much because it's been lacking in that area for so long. Um, but like I said, I used to thrive in that area and I, sometimes I'd have fun with it and remind people what they said, but sometimes I needed a more, you know, head on the shoulder, private moment where I'd have to sit down and remind someone, Hey, they've gotten off course and let's be mindful of where we were trying to go in the first place. Okay. What about Steve? How did you deal with self-doubt? Um, at times, not well. It's the best way to answer that question. Uh, at times, not well. And, and, and so for me, when I look through my journey, my, my life has been, I would say, I'd have to separate my life in two, two very significant chapters. One was the athlete, and then the other was the post-athlete. And I won't even say coach, I'll just say post-athlete because the pursuit of what I was trying to achieve as an athlete, I had blinkers on. I was so narrow-sighted, everything forwards, forwards, forwards. So whenever so much as a tiny little thing would go wrong, it was so difficult to recover because you felt like you were in so much control because you're not letting much into this world. And suddenly now you notice this little chink in your armor. And for me personally, I wouldn't handle those moments well. You know, those things came up for me at times where I would have not wanted them to, let's be honest. And the beauty of the second chapter of my life is how much I've opened that what 
what was once a narrow road, how I've really just allowed it to completely open up and become almost immerse myself into the notion that things will go wrong and that there will be many, many things that we cannot control. And the irony of that is that in taking control of that very mindset, I've come to discover that self-doubt is really not much of an issue at that point. Uh, it's something that comes up, but because you've done the work on embracing adversity, understanding that when push comes to shove, there's actually a lot less that you have control over than you would like, you suddenly find yourself very agile, very maneuverable, someone that can respond and and pivot at a moment moment's notice. And we saw that during COVID, right? I mean, I hate to bring things back to COVID because people like to sort of like look over that part, but people were living very narrow-minded, straight, eyes dead ahead lives. And COVID came along and just put a roadblock up and said, what have you got now? You know, <laughs> you know? And, and people panicked, people struggled, you know, and they, they weren't ready for that. And I think that's probably one of the easiest ways I can explain that um, to make it a little bit relatable to everybody listening. Sure. And we, we're not that far out of COVID either. So uh, there's still quite a few people stuck on that um, on that roadblock. Mm. I want to move out of swimming now, but I want to bring forward the lessons that you learned as a top swimmer and all of the things we've just talked about that and talk about being successful in in general. So there'll be people listening to the show now, Steve, who say, well, I'm working on this project, whatever it might be, and I'm lost, or I've hit a roadblock, or, uh, or they fall off their goal, or how can we take the lessons that you've learned in your fabulous career as a swimmer, miraculous career as a coach in getting an Olympic gold medalist and apply it to people who want to be more successful in their lives, whatever their chosen field of adventure. Yes, this is something that it's, it's not going away anytime soon. You know, it, it's, it's, it's an ever day, ever present uh, factor. And, and it's what I enjoy about the work that I do today is that I work with these established business folk who 20, 25, in some cases, 40 plus years in their space experience. And still, still they get moments where they're stuck and then they don't know how to move forwards. I like to get out of the, a lot of the time we can be quite guilty of being vague with, with where it is we're trying to go with what it is we're trying to accomplish. And we're working on ideas of success as opposed to truly defining, hey, this is where I plan to go. This is exactly where I plan to go. When you become very specific and precise, you'll be amazed how fewer distractions there suddenly are. You'll be amazed how fewer versions and examples of noise there are surrounding you. You can suddenly now get way more specific about what that next step is. And, and that, for me, that ability to get more specific, definitive, about the ultimate goal, where you're truly trying to go, for someone just to say, for example, I want to be successful. I'm sorry, but that doesn't mean anything. It means it has zero definition. If you tell me what you want to be successful in and when you want to be successful by, now we're getting a little bit more definitive. 
and we can explore and we can we can zoom in more and more and more on that over time but that ability to get more specific suddenly now we see a true roadmap of where we're trying to go and we now start to go from maybe an absolute wealth of possibilities and options of what our next step can be and being overwhelmed by indecisiveness and not knowing where to go to suddenly saying hey i've only got two options in front of me and and now i get to pick one or the other and to my point earlier i have a choice whichever one i pick i have to live with and hey if it doesn't work out i know i have this other option but at least by committing to one of these two steps i'm no longer stuck i've made a decision I've now decided to make a step in one direction in some way, shape or form. Absolutely. Okay, Steve, there's a fascinating thing there. You talk about specificity. Tell me what you want. Just being successful is not enough. (laughs) It isn't. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Excuse me. So... Uh, what I get quite frequently, I people say to me, how do I become more successful? I say, well, what do you want? I want more money. And I say, okay, I'll take a dollar bill out of my pocket. And I go, there you are. <laughs> and they go, no, I want more than that. I said, but you were not specific. I ful- You asked for more money. I gave you more money. So you understand what I'm saying here, Steve, right? Sure. I'm going to pass this to you to explain more about what specificity means in the mind of a champion, a successful business person, or anyone who wants to be more successful. Yeah, for, for me, the there's, there's such a need to sit down before really going in pursuit of this notion of success and just getting a feel of what, what does this mean to you first? So let's whittle down firstly what you can maybe identify and establish as a version of success. But I always love asking the poignant question of, okay, well, what will achieving this mean to you? Uh, and someone says, oh, it will make me really happy. Okay. Like, again, we're staying in that very, very big world of vagueness at that point, you know? So I want to give that example of the, uh, of the athlete that, that I, I coached to Olympic gold. Yeah. Right when we first sat down, and he told me, "I think, I think I would like to try to train for the for the Olympic Games in 2020." And I said, "I think right, I would a, like exactly, exactly." So there's a lot of there was a lot of wishy second washy, guessing, yeah. second guessing, wishy washy. And I was like, "Well, let's try that sentence again. What 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 do you want to actually achieve?" And then in a moment, he immediately said, "I want to go to the Olympic Games in 2020 as a member of the U.S. team." And I said, now that is a statement that we can train towards. That is a statement that we can train towards. And then I asked, do you understand what's going to be required to do that? Now, I won't share his answer, but what I will say is that he had an answer. He had a response. And for me, at that point, at that juncture, Jeff, that was enough. The fact that he had actually thought it through and had an aversion of a response that shed light on the fact that he had given this some thought and that he was willing to consider what was required was enough for me as the person that was going to be very much leading the charge with him in this whole process to get excited, to get to, to truly want to immerse myself in this, which is a second part to this too. I want to just make this clear is that if you're going to go and achieve success, 
once you establish a little bit more of a specific element of what that success looks like and you wrap your head around what's going to be required to do it, ask yourself, who am I taking with me? Who, who am I taking with me? Because to your point with the professional golfers and to the story that I just provided, you're not doing it alone. And, and more often than not, if we don't have this type of dialogue or this type of back and forth with someone before we start, then we become reactive in our process. So we go to someone like you and we say, Jeff, help, help. I need, I want more money and it's not working. Everything I'm doing is not working. Well, now we're just, we're in a space of, of reactivity at that point. And that's not helpful to anybody. If we actually sit down before the process and say, not only do I understand what's going to be required of me, but I know that with this individual or maybe with this group of individuals around me, not only will they hold me accountable to it, but I'm going to bring enough to the table for them to want to hold me accountable. So we're now taking ownership. So that specificity, we've gone from just saying, I want to be successful to identifying the success, to understanding what's required for the success, and now knowing what community we need to immerse ourselves within in order to reach that success as well. I'm going to add something there, Steve. Please. One thing that I always ask as well, say, okay, this is what I want. And then you very rightly add, okay, do you know what you need to do to get what you want? Which is great. Mm -hmm. My third one, are you willing to pay the price? Mm. Because people go, oh, yeah, I want the nice house. I want the nice car. I want to fly the helicopter. I want this wonderful life. And, okay, are you willing to pay the price to get that? Because mm. the price of success is paid in full and in advance, mm -hmm. you know, and, and most people are not willing. I say, I'm not saying most people, that would be unfair. There's a lot of people who are not willing to pay that price. So mm. if you want to go to the Olympics and win gold, then a two hour swim every day in the pool is like chicken feed, I would guess, right? You, you Absolutely. Got, you're going to need to do more than that. Because the, mm -hmm. the Michael Phelps of this world and all the other champions, I mean, what are they doing? What does their regime look like when you're at that top of the world level? What's, yeah, the, what's their regime? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't, I probably need a whole other podcast to go into the details of, of what their regime looks like. But what, what your point brings up, Jeff, is, is something that I work on uh, with, with clients today. But it's funny, when I first started my business, <laughs> I started to come up with terminology and, and words that I would use with my clients that I would I was pulling from my time as a sim coach, but I'd never really given a name. I'd never defined it. And something for me that for years I had operated with was minimum standards. I call these minimum standards. And people hear that and they go, you're talking about the bare minimum. I'm like, no, that's absolutely not what I'm talking about because the bare minimum is what you just said, like showing up to the pool and swimming for two hours a day. I, to this day, I could show up and do that. It would be ugly and it would be painful for me <laughs> in, in a lot of different areas, but I could still do that. And if that's the box that I have to tick every day to say that I'm going to be an Olympic gold medalist, all right, I'm doing it. But so that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that based on the goal, what is the minimum requirement of you to have even a chance? And that's the key here, not to guarantee success. Mm-hmm just have a chance at success and to wrap your head around that not only am I going to hold myself accountable to a minimum requirement, 
but I'm going to do it without a guarantee as well. Do you understand how difficult that is to wrap one's head around? And that's where you have to get to in this space of being a champion is not only showing up and hitting these minimum standards, but immersing yourself in it, knowing that you may still not get the return on that investment that you set out to get in the first place. Mm, Wonderful. I love that. Okay. Steve Mallow, you've written a book. It is called (laughs) Shock the World with an exclamation mark at the end. A competitor's guide to realizing your potential. So this is now the time to talk about this book. So here we go. Why was now, why is now the time to write it? Who is it for? And big one now. Why did you think you were the person to write this book? <laughs> um, <clears throat> now is the time. Now is the time because so coming off the back of the story with with my athlete, funnily enough, is that when literally in that meeting that I just allowed you to be privy to that first time we ever spoke off the back of it, once we had our back and forth for the better part of 30, 45 minutes, and then said, listen, if we pull this off, we'll be we'll be shocking the world. There's no doubt about it. And that, and that was where the book in many ways was born, but that's where our story was born. You know, we, we, and we held that mantra, if you will, of shock the world throughout the two year process towards achieving the goal. It was a really cool thing because every time we hit some element of a milestone, there was just these private moments where we could just acknowledge, Hey, shock the world. And it was just, and we were just, it was just a recognition by saying those three words, those, those three words, we were literally acknowledging that we were on course to what we were trying to do. And so in terms of who the book is for, it is for anyone, it is for anyone with the competitive drive to realize their potential. And that first part is really important. It's not for just someone to realize their potential because by reading this book, I cannot be the stimulus for you to want to realize your potential. I say that to everyone who's picked it up. If you have a fire within you, even if it's just a tiny little spark of interest, competitive desire to actually see what you're capable of or realize more importantly what you're capable of, then this is the book for you. And I think we are we are in a time right now, Jeff, where people have never been more curious about what that looks like. But what does it mean for me to actually realize my potential? Because I'm interested, I'm curious, the notion seems attractive to me, but for whatever reason, I can't get off the starting line. And and that's what this book is. It's the starting line that you need to get off, get going, and start to see some progress towards that. Now, why am I the one to 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 do this? This was the beauty of writing the book, Jeff. Honestly, so it start it started out as this, you know, co- coming off this story with my athlete, and then I started to look back on four and a half years of of my own podcast, and and saying, okay, how many examples have I had of people realizing their potential come on my show, and so. Before I realized it, out of my 100 plus episodes that I'd done, I probably had a solid sort of 40 to 50 that were in that in that sort of discussion, if you will. And I whittled it down to the best 17, 18 of those stories and included those within the book too. But as I was going through the writing process, it finally occurred to me, going all the way back to one of your first questions of me and what I'm here to do and what my goals are, my greatest gift in life is realizing the potential of others. And I realized that through this writing process. Does that mean 
that I'm the greatest gift of whatever when it comes to swimming, when it comes to coaching, when it comes to this and that, absolutely not. You know, and so for me, that ability to facilitate one desire to realize their potential, that is where I can be best served on planet Earth. And I was able to realize that through this writing process and the beauty of the book as well as I think it's representative of exactly that as well. Okay, so this is your first book, right? It is. Okay. <laughs> I I want to go back to the to the the beginning of the journey to write this book. Yeah. And I want to find if it's possible some parallels in your mindset for writing a book and being a top-class swimmer. So are some of the characteristics the same? Let's find out, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, an the answer is 100%. The answer is oh, 100%. Yeah. 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 I, I, know yeah. The, I know the answer to that, but it, it's <laughs> specifically uh, relating to these because if we can forge the links between swimming as one discipline and writing a book as another discipline, and then... Well, we won't draw any others. We'll just use those two. <laughs> but but if the mindset is the same for both, then we can apply these principles of success to anything in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Steve decides to write a book. He's never written a book before. What goes through your head? Firstly, I need help. Okay. <laughs> it's the first thing. Yeah. The first the first thing that goes through my head, honestly, is I need help. And help doing what? Help in terms of mapping out what does the moment of having the idea to write a book look like to actually that thing being available on Amazon, for instance, one day. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a I respect that that's a process. I respect that it's not a matter of just simply sitting down and writing a book. There's so much more to it that I know I'm not considering because how can I possibly know? And so for me, I was able to connect with uh, a gentleman called Dr. Dennis Covier, actually based out of Canada. I was introduced to him. He had 20 plus years of not only writing books, publishing books as well. And so for me, I was immediately introduced to someone that knew what they were doing. And I had my own coach. I had my own coach for, for, for the writing process. And now I was in familiar settings immediately by just simply getting myself a coach. The whole circumstances of writing a book became just a little bit more familiar to me because it was now I'm going to do the work. Someone's going to measure the work. Someone's going to hold me accountable to continuing to do the work. And then I'm going to continue to hold myself accountable to bring in this thing to fruition. Now, while Dr. Covier didn't actually help me write the book, he kept me on path. You know, that every word in that book is 100% authentically me. And so for me, being able to wrap my head around like, okay, what is the plan? What is the process? How do I actually bring this thing to fruition? Suddenly now I had some sort of a guide to getting from the beginning to the end of this entire process. So that was the big first one for me. But I will add the second part of this is that I was attached to the idea of the book as well. And I think that is such a big, the, it, I, I, the best way to describe that is I was attached to the goal. Same way I was as an athlete. I was attached to the goal, to the vision of becoming what I wanted to become in the world of swimming. This wasn't just, hey, people have always said, you know, you, you should write a book. You should write a book. That's not what this was. I, I didn't tell anybody that I was doing this. 
you know, for me, I was like, I have a great idea. I know I have all this substance in terms of the podcast and things like that over the years. I have my own life, which pulls in a few nuggets of, of experience and, and just lessons in that. I love this idea and I'm really attached to the notion of bringing this book to fruition because I see the potential in it. And that was enough for me to sit down and start writing. You know, I think that for, for anyone listening, whether it's writing a book, swimming the channel, whatever it might be, you know, if it's some, whatever crazy goal you think you may have, if you feel attached to the goal, why not? Why not? Why, why not give it a, give it a, at least a, the, the conversation it deserves and, 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 and start that process of exploring, okay, what will this look like and how can I bring this to fruition? Okay. Did you ever fall off the rails along the journey and think, I can't write anymore, or do I really want to do this, or I'm not going to meet the, the deadline, or, or what, whatever comes into mind? Yeah, the only, the only voices I heard, uh, the only voices I heard, Jeff, throughout this process were my English teachers from, from secondary school who told me that I can't write. That was the only, that was the only voices that I heard. And, um, whether, whether it was their voices or the many, many words and lines of red pen from my homework that I would get returned back in the day. Um, and, and you know, what was funny though, that even amongst all those sort of elements of doubt and some paranoia that I may have had one of the, and I, I even joke about this in the, uh, in the acknowledgement section of the book, um, one piece of feedback they would always give me is you're writing this as though you're talking. You're not writing this, you know, from an English literature standpoint. I'm not writing correctly from that side of things. But you just, you're just talking through the page. And suddenly I had this sort of realization in the writing process. It's like, well, that's what I'm trying to do with the book. <laughs> I want my voice to come through this book. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want this to be. And suddenly I had this almost moment of just empowerment and uplift. It was like, okay, wait maybe, maybe I, this is actually my skill. Maybe this is the type of book that I was supposed to write in the first place. And so with that, I'd love telling that story because I took what many would have seen as a criticism and a reason not to try and actually spun it around and used it as an, an amazing source for why I should do it in the first place. You know, so that was something I love telling people because I think people can really relate to something like that. Okay. So you were able to continue writing all the way to the end and you completed the book. That's the only thing that gave you a wobble. It was. And this is what I'll, I'll say. This is how I related the, um, this is how I connected my world of back in the day as an athlete to, to this of, of writing a book is I, is I made it almost seasonal. You know, I, I said, okay, I'm going to map out how I'm going to write this book. And I'm going to have moments over the next, and and to be honest, from the moment I, I started to write to the moment it was ready to go to the printers, that was about a six and a half, seven month process. So nothing crazy, like not, not, not something that was in my life for years or anything like that. And what I did is I circled points within that six month process where I was going to truly immerse myself in this book. And I'm only talking like two or three days at a time where I would say to my wife, listen, three weeks, four weeks, two months from now, just assume that. I'm not going to be here to help with the kids. So whatever help you need, <laughs> get it, get, get it, coach. get it during these two, get it, get it during these two or three days. Um, and, and so what I, and like I said, I, I found, Hey, I'm going to almost create like a training plan, if you will, for how I write this book, as opposed to just saying, Hey, I start this in March and in October, I'm going to have a book and then just pick it up whenever I want and go back to it whenever I want. I, I knew that that isn't how I thrive. That isn't a space where I'm going to work well. 
So having these little writing retreats, as I called them, and the retreat was go upstairs and retreat from my family is the best way to describe that. Um, the, the fact was it worked for me and it was, it was how I was able to implement that sort of athletic element to what I was doing. Yeah, that does not work for everyone. I will say no. it's, it's exactly what I did myself. Mm-hmm. And my uh, my wife would take my girls out and just, yeah, we <laughs> let's leave daddy. Let's just leave him. <laughs> he's not going to be very nice for the next couple of hours. <laughs> you know my wife, huh? <laughs> yeah, but then uh, w- when they came back after the few hours, then I would switch off and then be with them. And right. I would say, wherever you are, be there. And, mm. I, and I think that that's an important one you make there. Definitely. So, but but that that is not right for everyone. So here's a question for you, Steve. Why do you think people struggle to find the resilience they need to follow their dreams, their goals, and their aspirations? Yeah, it might be my favorite question you've asked yet, simply because, again, going back to what I do to. Well, not even, I wouldn't even make this about what I do today. One of my favorite things when I was working in the swimming world was sitting down with a kid for the first time and noticing that they, to some extent, had given up on pursuing their potential, that they, they'd, have, they'd had enough hardships and enough reasons to not try. And my goal was to remind them why it was worth doing it. And, and so for me being in that space for so long and working with some very, um, you know, working with the majority of kids was 18, I say kids, 18 to 22 year olds, so young adults um, that were in those formative years still. And for me, I said, okay, if, if I can get them to believe in themselves, despite the result, this is going to form how they respond to similar situations down the road. So that was always how I looked at that. But what I would get to the heart of is, one, why they felt as though the, they didn't have the resiliency anymore to to keep going. And then secondly, when was the last time that they thought about the goal that they once maybe had? Because sometimes the resilient, uh, sorry, the adversities and the discomfort, they pile up so much that all we think about is that. And we lose ourselves in this. And this is the point where I'm getting to is the, the notion of authenticity, of the, the notion of knowing oneself. You know, that again, going back to the example of 18 to 22 year olds, they're still getting to know who it is they are and why I'm working today with people in their forties, fifties, in one case, seventies, to a certain extent, still establishing who it is they are, what it means to be authentic and to love that version of themselves in the process too. So when resilience does come your way or the need to be resilient comes your way, you're showing up as your truest self. You're showing up as your authentic self because you care for you, you love you, and you want what's best for you. So again, like going back to those athletes that I was working with, if I could get them just to reestablish that love and that connection for who it is they are, why it is they love what they do, or at least once love what they do, and maybe start to reconnect with some of those goals that they'd allowed to fall by the wayside because they'd handled and maybe not overcome too many adversities over many, many years. Well, if we can reconnect to that desire and we can reconnect to that love for ourselves, then in time, we can start to really discuss the goals again because we're going to get ourselves back on the straight and narrow. 
maybe build some momentum again and maybe start to refocus, hey, we can go after some of these goals that maybe we'd lost sight of at some point. So that that desire to truly define who we are, why we love ourselves, and then why we love what it is we do, because then we're going to start to really immerse ourselves into that process despite any setbacks along the way. I have so many questions there. So <laughs> many. I can't let you get away with that. So, so the first one that's really quite deep is finding out who we truly are. Mm. Okay, let's go with that one for starters then. That, that's quite deep. So how do we go about finding out who we truly are and what does that mean? Hmm. So one of the chapters, my, my whole book is um, each chapter has a shock. So it's, uh, you know, shock the self, shock the mindset, shock the approach, just kind of keeps going. Chapter five is shock the truth. And we as human beings, we're not fans of the truth. Let's put it that way. That's, I think that's a nice way of putting it. We're not, we're not necessarily fans of the truth. But as the old saying goes, the truth will set you free. You know, and, and, and why it may, it, while it may seem just like this thing that you see on the back of something sometime and, and it's just a, a quote or whatever, there is so much value in that, in the sense that I got to a certain point in my life where I had ignored a lot of truths about myself. And it actually led to me going into depression for some time. Uh, and when I say some time, I mean a couple of years and, and, and lost myself in that process didn't like myself in that process, all these sort of things. And the more and more I found the courage to sit down and get much more comfortable with truths about myself, suddenly I started to learn to love myself in that process as well. Suddenly I started to say, okay, you recognize that this is an area of yourself that is flawed. What do you want to do about it? And, and, and for me, when I encounter so many people in this day and age or this time in my life, sorry, that as I go about doing what I do and networking and all this kind of thing, people will say to me like, oh, you're a very confident individual. And I push back. I go, well, it may come off as confidence because I, I spend a lot of private time thinking about what I can do better, what some of my you know shortcomings and all this kind of thing. But what it is, it's, it's a comfort of my truths. It, it, it's having comfort in who it is I am what I what it is I bring to the table, um, and and the reasons behind that too, like the like and again, like people call it their why and all that kind of thing. But for me, like my reasons for why I show up and do what it is I do, who who I do it with, how much I bring to the table, etc. So much of that is me becoming more and more comfortable with truthfully who I am, what it is I want, and what it is I'm willing to do about it in the process too. And I think we learn to love ourselves when we start to immerse ourselves in some of those truths. It's interesting you talking about love ourselves because mm. I've done a few podcasts with people and I've heard the term self-loathing mm. quite a lot. So if I may, I want to probe with you a little bit more. You don't have to say this about you. You can if you wish, of course. But you said, I was unwilling to recognize some truths about myself. So you went into denial. Mm -hmm. So we can be generic here or we can talk about you. It's your choice. But 
what kind of things are you talking about when you say, I didn't want to admit these truths about myself? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to keep it on myself. Cause I think it's in, I think this is how we learn is, is when we, when we speak about our own experiences. So for, for me, the, um, the way I treated myself first and foremost. So when I came from a, a background in sport, there was really only one way I could treat myself in order to be successful. And that was being all in and then taking everything seriously and respecting what it was I had to do. And then when I left that and I no longer had the, um, you know, almost clear cut examples of what I should and should not be doing. Well, then I was in the real world as, as, as you would say, and, and, and there's so many opportunities and so many desires and things that you can follow and whatever it may be. And it was like, I was trying to catch up for lost time and I lost myself in that process. And it's, again, I, none, none of this is, I, I say none of this with regret because it's all taught me about myself and, and got me to where I am today, but how I was treating myself prevented me from treating anyone the way I was capable of treating them. And I think this is why I like to use this notion of loving oneself, because if you want to true, like truly love those around you and give yourself the best way you can love those around you is by giving your best self to them. And that's hard for people to get their head around sometimes is that we, we like to serve. We like to just give ourselves and be available and do for others, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the best ways that we can actually, or the best way that we can actually be of use and be of support to others is by giving our best self to them each and every time. And that was the biggest truth that I, I hit first and foremost. And it's where my self-loathing to use that term I, I mean, I loathed myself. I cannot be any clearer about that. I would wake up and look in the mirror and just hate the guy looking back at me for, for, for a number of number of months. And it probably turned into a year or so. And that was because one, I wasn't treating myself well. Two, I therefore knew that I couldn't possibly be treating others around me well. And there was evidence of that. Uh, and then three, because of that, I, I felt lost. I felt incredibly lost. I didn't have direction, purpose, anything like that. Um, so again, that, that ability for one to start by treating themselves well and being okay with prioritizing ourselves. And that's a big one. You've got to be okay with it. And that is hard to just do sometimes, but if you're willing to just say, listen, I need these five minutes for me to now show up maybe every hour, maybe you take five minutes for you to show up as your best self for the next 55 minutes of that hour, each and every hour of each and every day. Maybe that could be the way you start something like this. But that's, for me, that's where I started my process of getting over, let's say, the self-loathing. How do you get from self-loathing to loving yourself? How do you know your love, you love yourself? What is loving yourself? What does that mean? You know, for, for me, one, it starts with appreciating yourself like be, and being comfortable doing that. Uh, two, prioritizing time for yourself. And sometimes that can be with other people. Like, I want to be clear about that. Like you can, you can prioritize yourself and be around others at the same time. I'm not saying we have to just remove ourselves constantly. Um, and then the the third part of that too is is recognizing what you're capable of and pursuing it willingly too. You know, for me now, I get to wake up every morning and say, "Gosh, you know, you, you you're treating yourself well. You're making time for you." And you're really saying, "Listen, I am doubling down at this point in my life more than ever before." in terms of truly pursuing what I know I can best, how sorry I can best serve others because that is at my essence. That is what I've always wanted to do is, is to serve and be there and, 
and provide opportunities for others. But for, for a long time, I was doing that at the expense of me. And that was where I was getting in trouble. And when I, be, when I started to make that my sort of final product, my end goal, and focus on the steps to do that to the best of my ability, then suddenly I realized that it all started with the man in the mirror that I was seeing each and every morning when I woke up and, and finding ways to prioritize what was right for him a little bit more. Yeah. I find that quite fascinating, you know, because a lesson that comes out there with me, or mm. for me, I should say, is I, I put a post on LinkedIn a few weeks ago. And it said, if you want to be a millionaire, you need to mix with millionaires. Mm -hmm. If you want to catch COVID, then you need to mix with people who have COVID. Sounds ridiculous, right? But, but it's true. So what I'm going to take from that and what you said, if you're going to put yourself out there to help others to find themselves I don't think you can do that until you found yourself. Mm. I don't think you can be self-loathing and then go teach others to love themselves. Right. And I was listening to really deeply to what you were saying there and your journey from the self-loathing to the self-loving and, and this what was going through my head. Uh, it was very, very, very powerful. Mm. So thank you for that. I, mm. I, I really, I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, we're coming to the end of the show, unfortunately. So what I want to do now, you're going to come back, Steve, you know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so, I've just got so many questions for you. But <laughs> right now, Thank you for all the advice you've given on your life as a swimmer, your life as a coach, writing your book. I'd like you to summarize, if you can. People listening to the show want to be more successful in whatever their chosen field of endeavor. For people who want to be more successful, can you kind of summarize how to do that? What tips would you give them? What would they think about to be more successful in their chosen field of endeavor? Yeah, uh, you know, it, this question comes up almost within the first session, if not the second session with every client that I work with now in the corporate space. Because again, they start vague. They start vague and we, we try to measure and we're, we're, we're so focused, sorry, on measuring success and we're not defining success. And, and I think that... It, some may hear that and not notice a difference, but there's a massive difference. I was there's going massive, to ask you, what's the difference yeah, between the there's two? There's a massive difference, yeah. And, and so for me, the, the, the measuring of success, how can we possibly measure something that cannot be defined? That, that is how I like to sum it up. Because for me, it goes back to that example that I gave before of an athlete without a coach being too busy measuring themselves against others. And forgetting, well, didn't you, wasn't there something that specifically that you wanted to achieve you, the individual? So why are you so busy comparing what you're doing with others? And this notion, especially today, I mean, the, every day you go on your, your social medias, your LinkedIn, whatever it is, 
And if you have, you could be having a great day and you see someone in your field who based on their social media post is having a better day. And now you're in a place where you're like, I'm no longer as successful as I thought I was because you've gone from losing what you were defining as success. And now you're too busy measuring your success against somebody else. So set a definition for your success and commit to it. Commit to it and don't be influenced. Don't be taken off track by getting caught up in measuring it versus somebody else's definition of success. Because that is where we, that's why I, as I've started to publicize this book, I say to people all the time, there is always going to be four or five examples out there of why not to do something versus the one reason as to why you should. And the same goes for success. There's always going to be four or five opportunities to measure our success versus somebody else that's going to pull us away from that one reason, that one definition of how we were defining success in the first place. So try to define it and try to commit to that definition and not get distracted by the many other things around you that can pull you from measuring your success against somebody else. So there we go. You cannot measure it until you first defined it. Love that. Steve, man, I've got a really important question for you now. <laughs> this is the question that I ask every guest who comes on to the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Steve Mallow, what is the most important thing you've ever learned in your life? That I know how to be a phenomenal husband and father. That for me has taught me more in the last four years of my life than anything has ever taught me. And the reason I use that as an example is because I've spent up to the point of becoming a husband and then becoming a father, I spent this time trying to better understand me and learn to love me. And now I've come to realize that my roles in life each and every day start with how I show up as a husband and a father. Going back to defining success, that's how I define success. I define success in how I show up as a father and as a husband each and every day. And that has taught me more about myself than anything, any adversities, any issues up until this moment, uh, up until these last four years of my life. And being able to know that that's how I define success allows me to be able to measure each and every day exactly how it is I show up. Wonderful. I love it. Now, Steve, there will be people listening that will be saying, hey, I want to buy Shock the World by Steve Miller, or I want to speak to you about the coach or some other things. So how do we get in touch with you to speak with you, to hire you as a coach and to buy your book? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to buy the book, real simple. Uh, I've only put it on Amazon at this point. Uh, so any country that has Amazon, it's available in. Uh, so shock the world, just type that in and it should come up or you can just type my name in and it should come up. But in terms of reaching out to me, I do have a website, which is my business, careercompetitor.com. But I always tell people I would much rather be doing exactly what you and I are doing right now, Jeff. So just email me directly, steve at careercompetitor.com, steve at careercompetitor.com. If you do that, I'll email you back in 24 hours, I promise. And we'll set up a time to chat and we can go into whatever it is you'd like to talk about. So I, I, I encourage everybody to reach out direct. Well, I don't have your book yet. 
<laughs> Shocking, huh? <laughs> well, that's the goal. The goal between the before the next time I come on, that'll be the, no, that'll no. Be the only I, I, the I, only I, expectation. <laughs> I, I, I've just come back from vacation, so uh, I've just got my house in order. So when soon as this show finishes, I'll go back. I'll go on and get your book ordered and done. Have you done an audible version yet? I have not, no, and I've been massively encouraged to do so. So I'm, I'm going to make that top of my list in the first quarter of 2023 to sit down and do that. The first quarter. That's not very specific, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've got, oh. the, I've got the benefit of him on video. I'm teaching here. you well. I'm teaching yeah. you well. That's all that matters. Le- le- that. Leaning back and clapping and laughing. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to come back to you at some point because specificity, that's my thing. Having written seven books and stuff, I know all what you're talking about is good stuff. So Mm. it's been phenomenal. Unfortunately, that is it for today. Steve Meller, you've been truly amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Jeff. You've been great. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion, be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realize your dreams. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. Please leave a review and perhaps more importantly, share the show with just one person. Share it because... It really does make a huge difference because without you, we can't succeed. And you might also make a big difference to someone else using Steve's words to inspire them. So go ahead, like, review, follow, and more importantly, share. On another note, I'm always searching for great success stories. So if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me on our website at jeff-smith.com. You know, I really would love to hear from you and get you on the show. But that's it for today. Thank you to Steve Meller. He has been amazing. Thanks again. That's all from me. Thank you for listening and have a great day.